Friendship isn't the big things, it's a million little things. Welcome friends, to the A Million Little TV Shows podcast. I'm your host, Mike, and I'll be delving into TV shows that I feel don't seem to get enough love. Over the course of the pod, we'll break down episodes and talk about my thoughts and feelings on the shows. doing well welcome to this the 10th episode of season two which makes it the 23rd episode overall so nearly a quarter of a way to 100 genuinely stoked about that hope you're all well in fact how are you i'm gonna wait for an answer so give it a couple of seconds good i'm glad you're all okay well today we've got something new on the horizon so Instead of doing any comedies or a drama series or anything like that, what I'm going to do today is something down the horror genre. And when this comes out, it's going to be the middle of October, so I missed spooky season. But the thought was there. When I'm recording this, it's spooky season, so that counts, right? Anyway, today I'm going to tackle Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities, season one, episodes one to four. Now... As many of you probably have seen, I like something with a bit of variance in every episode. Uh, I do like a good long series, but there's times when I just like to watch something that's sort of one hit, that you just get to watch the episode, take everything in, and enjoy it for what it is, and know that next week, you can come back to it the next week and not really have any interest in what happened the previous week. There's no connection. Sometimes. Like Modern Love, I do like it where there's a connection towards the end, so it sort of ties everything together. But I also like something like this, where it is a one and done. So, it's a good anthology series. It's very much down the road of sort of a Twilight Zone, but of course, Del Toro is one of the biggest horror directors of all times. Um, so putting his name to this was pretty big and he's also got a lot of other directors in to do the actual episodes so each episode is done by a different director and obviously a different cast and uh, things like that so it's it's clever hopefully you enjoy it hopefully you've already watched it and you can come along with the story with me and if you haven't go check it out it's really really good but let's get into it episode one Lot 36. In this episode, we have Tim Blake Nelson playing Nick, Sebastian Rush as Roland, Demetrius Gross as Eddie, and Elipedia Carrillo as Amelia. And the director for this is Guillermo Navarro. Now, looking at this guy's background, he's got quite a good background in horror. So he's directed some episodes of Hannibal. Sleepy Hollow, Damien, Preacher, so he's got quite a good pedigree. Hannibal, by the way, which we'll be covering next season, so we'll get more from Guillermo at that point. But let's start with the episode. So we start in the house of an old man. He's just watching TV, seems to be settled in for the night, but doesn't seem in the best health. He finishes his dinner, gets up and walks to the kitchen. As he does, as he does... He places his container in the bin, which is filled to the brim with a similar container, and puts on an apron. On his counter is some sort of dead animal, 
some sort of rodent by the looks of it, and he begins dissecting it. But as he does, the head falls to the floor. He bends over to pick it up, and his body gives out. He has a heart attack there and then, and since he is a lonely man, ends up dying alone. Then we see a bunch of people arrive at a storage bin. It seems to be like an episode of Storage Wars. I didn't know this actually happened, but they're bidding on what's in the store. They all get a quick glance at what's going on in the store, and then get to bid on it. But Nick seems to be the one that's most determined to get this store. And of course, this is Lot 36. Nick ends up winning the bid, and he finds out that it was the old man's. It seems that Nick has some sort of business relationship with the storage manager, Eddie. So when he's won on the bid, Eddie shows him what the old man has been up to every time he comes into the building. The man shows up on security camera every day and has a bag full of something. He walks into his lot, closes the door, stays there for an hour and doesn't come out. Before he enters, he does what seems to be a little ritual dance. And after he leaves, he does the same dance. Nick, we learn, has several of these storage bins and seems to be in debt along the way. While Eddie's in his office, an old woman, Amelia, turns up and it seems that she's there to pay her bill that she hasn't paid for two months. But Eddie, the manager, has already sold this bin to Nick and Amelia asks what about the stuff that was inside and Eddie tells her that she'll have to speak to Nick about it. So as she does, he tells her that he's sold most of the stuff and the stuff that he couldn't sell he threw out. There might be some bits that are left in there that she can go and get, but there isn't a lot left. And Amelia is obviously distraught by this because it's old family pictures and things like that, memorabilia that she wanted to keep. But Nick just doesn't care. He's got a real bad attitude when it comes to this woman, and he seems very xenophobic. We also find out that he's a veteran, so when he's accused of being racist, he says he doesn't see colour. He says he only ever sees green, meaning the uniforms of his compatriots. So Nick starts looking into Lot 36 at what he's purchased, and he starts cleaning it out. As he's walking around the building, the lights are flickering, but also they're on those timer switches. So every now and again, he has to stop, find the nearest switch and turn them back on. While he's going through it, looking for things to sell, he finds a candlestick and a table with a five-pointed star on the centre, done in what seems to be some sort of red wood, or dyed red wood. And the table also has some chairs with it. As Nick packs this stuff into his truck and goes out to get it appraised, he gets approached in the car park by a man he owes money to. Nick gets beaten up and the car windshield smashed. It turns out that Nick owes around 12k and is now just buying these storage bins to try and make a profit to try and pay these people back. When Nick gets beat up, Amelia is watching from the shadows, but in no way tries to help Nick at all. When Nick goes to get the table appraised, he finds out that it's he finds out it's a seance table. And when the appraiser starts looking around it, she finds secret compartments which hold three books. She tells Nick that she has no idea what these books are, but knows a man who does. When the collector arrives and asks about the books, Nick tells him that there was only three, to which the collector asks, if we can find the fourth, it'll be a lot more, because that's the pivotal book. At the minute, he tells Nick that it will only be $10,000 that he can give him for the three books. But if they find the fourth, it'll be $300,000. 
and Nick, being quite a greedy little man, sees just dollar signs, as probably most would. But the collector tells Nick that the fourth book will combust when the quote-unquote transaction is done. So he's worried that this transaction, whatever it was, has already been done and the book no longer exists. The collector tells him that he knows about Lot 37, and he also knows about the man who used to be there. While on the way back to the storage bins, the collector tells Nick all about this man who used to own the books, and who owned the storage bin originally, and how his family was into the occult, and he was a descendant of Nazis, but also that he had a sister, who years earlier went missing, with no trace. So once back at the storage lot, Nick and the collector begin going through the bin until they get to the back and realise that there is, yet again, another secret compartment. Nick opens it up and he and the collector head inside. As they do, the collector warns Nick that he has a feeling that they may meet something otherworldly in this new chamber. But Nick doesn't care. All he cares about is the money. Once they get to the end of this chamber, they find... The old man's sister, or at least the corpse of the old man's sister, laid in a pentagram with what looks like red salt around her. But where her face used to be is a tentacled creature. The collector warns Nick not to cross the room as Nick spies the book, but it's too late. Nick has just seen dollar signs and he rushes for it, disturbing the sand or the salt or whatever it is and awaking the beast. The collector is killed instantly by the demon, and Nick escapes. But as he runs through the maze-like building, trying to find his way out, he's pursued. Eventually, Nick finds the door, and as he does, he can't exit. Just then, a face appears at the window, and he begs it for help. As you see Amelia look back in, turn her back on him, and walk away, leaving Nick to be taken by the demon. Now, what I love about this story is... Firstly, the cast is done really well. Um, I think Tim Blake Nelson gets cast in these roles quite a lot, where he's sort of the seedy, weird guy. I know he played Samuel Stearns in The Hulk, and he was going to be the leader, I believe, in the MCU at one point. I'm not sure if he's going to come back now that, obviously, the world is expanding, but he may do. But even that role, he was a little bit weird, a little bit creepy in it, and he gets cast in these kind of roles, but he plays them really well. And this, he just played it to perfection. And the fact that he got his comeuppance, not at the hands of Amelia, but essentially at the hands of Amelia, is um, a nice twist. You know, if he'd have just been courteous towards her and maybe helped her out, she may have got him out of there, but he wasn't. He was just a nasty piece of work. But after watching episode upon episode of Supernatural or anything sort of spooky like Sleepy Hollow or anything along those lines, you kind of know not to mess with a pentagram because as soon as you disturb that, you're fucked. That's it, you're done. Like, there's something that's trapped in there. Don't fuck around with it because it's going to get out, it's going to get you. So as soon as you saw the pentagram, you knew exactly what was going to happen. But it was good. It was a nice little start to this series. And like I say, I, I, you know, you don't have to think about him anymore. It's that's this done, and you can just move on to the next one, which is a pretty cool story as well. So, anyway, episode two, Graveyard Rats, and this episode stars David Hewlett as Misson, 
and Julian Richins as the mortician. And this story is directed by Vincenzo Natale, who's also done things like Hannibal, Hemlock Grove, Westworld, American Gods, Lock and Key, The Stand. So again, another horror background. We start with two grave robbers who are caught in the act while in a grave. The man who catches them, Misson, tells them that he is the watcher of the graveyard and he scares them off, but not before he gets them to hand over what they've stolen already. He then proceeds to jump in the grave himself and begins scavenging around. As he does, he's bitten by a rat and then the body disappears down a tunnel. Mason is in debt, and he tells the man that he owes the money to that the rats of Salem are stealing the bodies of the dead before he can even get his hands on any of the apparel that may adorn these poor bodies. He also tells him that the rich aren't dying, and it's only the poor that are, so grave robbing's becoming harder and harder. But also, he seems to suffer from some sort of claustrophobia because he doesn't want to make it into the tunnels to try and get to where the rats are taking these bodies. But desperate times may call for desperate measures. When the man lets him off for another week, Maison goes to see the mortician to see if there's any new acquisitions that have come in with things like gold teeth or medals or anything like that. But the mortician tells him no. He allows him to examine the bodies, but there's very slim pickings and most of the bodies are of no value to him. Mason, however, spies something behind a curtain, and when he goes behind there, the mortician tells him, you can't look at that one yet, the chief examiner hasn't had a look at him yet, so you can't do anything to him. But as Mason opens it, the man's mouth, he spies several gold teeth, and knows that this is the hall that he came for, and the mortician has to fight him back. Just then, the chief examiner walks in, and Mason and the mortician hide as this rich man's widow comes to examine the body. Her and her son start to talk about the arrangements for the funeral and how they're going to dress this man in his finery, including his medals and including a priceless sword given to him by the king. So Maison's eyes light up. He knows he has to wait for this body to go in the ground before he can do anything, but knows that once it does, he'll make good money out of this. Only hours after the funeral, Maison digs up the body, but is just too late and finds that the body has already been taken by the rats. He knows this is the only way he's going to get out of his debt, and therefore he dives into the grave and goes through the tunnels. As he scrambles through, some of the tunnels start to collapse on him, and he ends up being swarmed by rats. To scare them off, he takes out his pistol and shoots it. But unfortunately, while aiming at a rat, which is literally on his toe, he blasts straight through his foot, causing him agony. And it's here that he sees the giant rat that seems blind and chases him through the tunnels by sound. Right up until, right up until Maison falls into the main chamber, it's here that he forgets where he is and looks at all the treasure that's around him. Surrounded by bones, but also jewels, medals, necklaces, and one particular necklace which is hanging on what seems to be a body of some sort. Not picked apart like the skeletons that are down there, but still rotting. Isan goes over, he takes the necklace, and as he does, 
the body comes to life and begins to chase Maison. Maison heads through the tunnels again and comes to a point where he thinks he can get out. But as he tries, he realises that he's cornered. On one side is the giant rat, and on the other is this zombie-like creature coming after him. But as the rat comes towards him, manages to pull out a boulder from above, which falls directly on the rat, and Maison scrambles out. He sees light ahead of him and scrambles towards the light. But when he gets there, he realises that it's not light at all. It was a reflection of the lamp he was holding on a silver plate inside a casket. As Mason lays there and screams and scratches at the inside of this casket, the rats follow him. The next time we see Mason, he is being dug up by the men he scared off initially. Now again, this, this episode was really fun. As soon as you see that it's based in Salem, Massachusetts, in whatever era it is, you instantly think, this is going to be witches, because that's Salem. But when it actually turns out not to be that at all, and it's about a grave robber that needs to pay off his debt, it's quite a fun episode. And, and it's got the regular horror tropes of being, you know, set underground and sort of in a cramped space hiding from something or running from something when you're in that tight environment it's quite constricting it is quite a constricting episode but it was it was fun i thought mason was played well i felt like he was a bit of a greedy arsehole but got his comeuppance in the end and i like the fact that he starts off scaring the two guys off and turning out to be a grave robber but then at the end ends up scaring them off again when they come to rob his own grave. It's quite a nice little twist. Episode 3, The Autopsy, featuring F. Murray Abraham as Carl, Glyn Turman as Nate, and Luke Roberts as Joe. The director for this episode was David Pryor, who doesn't seem to have a massive bio, but has worked on a few projects. The most notable is a horror film called The Empty Man. But the actual teleplay or the screenplay was written by David Escoyo, which is interesting because he did things like the Dark Knight trilogy and Blade and the most recent Hellraiser, things like that. So there's a good horror background as well. So the episode starts at a coal mine. A man heads inside and jumps on top of the lift causing all manner of chaos. All the guys are telling him to get off and get out, but of course, he's on the top of a mineshaft lift. It's going down wherever it's going. The man jumps off the top of the lift and runs into the mine. As people are trying to stop him, he throws something backwards and it explodes. We then go to Carl, who is heading into a small town to meet up with his old friend Nate, who is the sheriff. Nate tells Carl that nine men died in the accident, and the perpetrator, who he describes as a monster. Nate begins to retell the story of what happened and how it happened with this man going down into the mine. It starts with Nate telling Carl about a story of a disappearance of a man in the town and how during the search they found a body in a tree. It was wrapped up, but when they took it down, the body was butchered and there was no blood inside. So Nate enlists two locals to stake out the crime scene, thinking that the murderer will come back. But they also disappear. The body belonged to a man named Abel Doherty. 
Nate tells Carl that Abel was from a few towns over, and he went missing one night after being in a bar, where he met a man called Joe Allen, who he believed he'd knew as another man called Eddie Sykes, who'd gone missing weeks earlier. This man, Joe Allen, hypnotises Abel. He makes him drop his beer as if he's drunk, and tells him that, don't worry, I'll take my friend home. But Abel is never seen again until he is found in the tree weeks later. The story of Eddie Sykes, however, is a different one. Eddie went hiking during a meteor shower, and it was then that he went missing. So when Joe Allen turned up in this small town, being suspected of being Eddie Sykes, and the body of a man, Abel Doherty, has turned up in their town as well, they suspect Joe Allen isn't all that he seems. When they go to where Joe lives, his landlady tells them that they can come in, but when they see Joe Allen, they need to tell him to get this thing out of his apartment. They head inside and find what looks to be an egg throbbing in the corner, and they don't know what to make of it. So they take the egg, they put it in their car, and they go to where Joe Allen works. Once they get there to speak to the foreman, Joe spies what's in the car, goes over, smashes the window, and takes the egg. It's here where the first scene plays out, and it was Joe Allen who jumps into the mine and causes the explosion. So due to the town's lack of resources, the bodies are being held in a refrigeration factory in town. Nate takes Carl to the factory, and while on the way, Carl admits that he has stomach cancer and has about six months to live. It's at this point we realise that Carl is a medical examiner. Carl starts processing the victims and Joe Allen. He starts with the man closest to the blast, looking for any sort of bomb fragments or anything that will give him an indication of what was used in the blast. He finds signs of trauma, but nothing bomb-related. And it's then that Carl hears a voice telling him to run. While on the second victim, Carl wonders why Joe did what he did. And he thinks that maybe whatever that egg was, maybe that's what he was doing. Maybe that was what he was trying to protect. He wasn't trying to cause destruction. He was just trying to get rid of the egg. But he finds something very weird in the second man, as his lungs were drained of blood, and there seems to be a puncture wound on the body. On the third victim, he finds the same thing. Punch marks and no blood. And then the lights go out. And once they come back on, Carl starts to think that maybe the blood is in Joe Allen. Carl heads in to go and get Joe. But as he does, he sees that Joe is actually up and around. It turns out that there is something inside Joe Allen, which is actually alien in origin. And it asks for Carl's help, because the body it's in is no good anymore. And it needs a new host. The alien also tells Carl that the egg was actually its spacecraft, and it knew that it had to get rid of it once it had been discovered, because if it didn't, it could expose their race. The alien tells Carl that it wants to take over him, even though it can smell his cancer, but it says that it will be delicious. The alien manages to overpower Carl and ties him up, leaving one hand free to do an operation on himself, which the alien will make him do via telekinesis. The alien releases itself from Joe Allen's body and crawls on top of Carl. Carl opens a slit on his side with a scalpel and the alien begins to integrate with his new host. But as it does, Carl realises that this is his opportunity. It knows the alien is blind 
and would only be able to see through Carl's eyes, and it would only be able to breathe the atmosphere through Carl's lungs, so decides to cut his own throat and gouge out his eyes so that the alien can't take over the body. In his defiant act, Carl writes something on his body in blood, and internally, as the alien melds with Carl's spirit, Carl tells him that it's over, it's done, there is nothing more that you can do, you are trapped in here, and when my friend gets here, when Nate gets here to find me dead, he's going to see and hear all about you, because while he was doing his autopsy, Carl was recording a tape that would be played back to Nate at a later date as to what he found during the autopsy. So when Carl arrives, not much after, he finds devastation in the room. He goes over to his friend Carl, looks at the body, and on his chest Carl has written, Play tape. Burn body. Now up to this point, this was my favourite episode. Like, I thought it was so clever. I do like the twist on the sci-fi aspect of things. Generally you don't get that sort of, oh he was a murderer but he was taken over by something unless it's sort of a, a ghostly apparition or a phantom or something like that, you know, some sort of possession. And I, you just didn't expect it to be alien. But then when it was, and it was this guy performing the autopsy on it, it was clever. I just thought back to things like Independence Day and movies like that, where you saw people getting possessed on the outside by aliens who they were autopsying. And it was, it was good. It was really good. I thought the acting was excellent in such minimal settings as well. And as you've heard from me talking about Inside Number 9, I like a minimal setting. I like somewhere where you don't have to think too much about the surroundings. You can just watch what's going on there and then. A bit like a play, really. I thought it was really clever, but it is really visceral. To say that the previous two guys directed episodes of Hannibal, which is very visceral as well, and this guy hasn't, and then it was probably the most gory episode. It's quite a feat, but I did think it was really clever and a really good twist on it. Episode 4, The Outside. This episode stars Kate Bakucci as Stacy, Martin Starr as Keith, and Dan Stevens as the advertiser for Aloe Glow. The director is Anna Lily Amirpour, who has also directed things like A Girl Walks Home at Night, a few episodes of Legion, Castle Rock, The Twilight Zone. So again, an incredible background when it comes to horror films, etc. And yes, I know Legion is a superhero thing, but it's an X-Men thing, but shh, I know. It's Christmas time in a small town. Well, I suppose... It's Christmas time everywhere, but in this small town, it's Christmas time. And a woman, Stacy, is watching trashy ads on TV. She hears a noise from the basement and goes to investigate, but finds nothing but the taxidermied animals down there. She calls her husband, Keith, a police officer, and he reassures her it's an old house and it makes noises. The next morning, Stacy goes into work. She works at a bank with a bunch of gossiping women, and they are using this product called Halo Glow. Stacy has to get a gift. Stacy has to get a gift for Secret Santa at the office. So she decides to create her own. She's good at taxidermy. So she taxidermies a duck 
But this is for, I suppose we can call her the chief gossip, Gina. She goes to Gina's home for the party and it's like a mansion. Stacy seems to be always on the outside of this group. And as everyone gets their gifts and open them all at the same time, they realise that they bought each other the same thing, this aloe glow product. But of course, Stacy has a different kind of gift for Gina and gives her the taxidermied duck. And nobody knows really what to make of it. But once talk of the product starts again, they don't care anymore. They're just in their own world. Stacy starts to use the product just as all the other women are, but ends up having what seems to be an allergic reaction. And Stacy ends up going home, literally red-faced. Once at home, Stacy can't sleep due to the itching and decides to go and watch some TV. But as she does, the TV host starts talking to her. She talks back and the host tries to convince her she has to keep up using the product, otherwise it won't work. It's only if she works through the pain of it, she'll get the full benefits. And so she decides to call the hotline to order more. The next morning the package arrives and Stacy decides to hide it in the basement from Keith, who's seen what's happened to her and tells her not to use the product anymore. Stacy keeps itching at her face and arms and wherever it is that is irritated. And Keith tries to tell her that she's great as she is. She doesn't need to change. But now it's in Stacy's head. She has to change. She has to be better. Stacy keeps hallucinating that TV is talking to her. And it keeps telling her to trust the process. Even when she's telling the screen that she can't do it anymore. It hurts too much. And she's constantly itching. She can't sleep. She's always irritated. And she hasn't been to work for days. Eventually the box of tubes opens up. And the lids start popping. And the aloe glow starts to leak out. And when she sees it, she runs upstairs to bed. And snuggles in next to Keith. Stacy is in a real mess. And she keeps saying it's going to get better. But Keith keeps thinking it's not. He wants her to stop using the product and go and see a doctor. But when Stacy heads down to the basement, she finds that the all glow has all leaked out and is now formed into a human shape, which Stacy goes over and embraces. Keith is so worried about Stacy and he tries to get through to her, but she just won't listen. He tells her he's had enough and she stabs him in the forehead with the scalpel she uses for taxidermy. And he starts pleading out. As he tries to contact the station with his radio, Stacy comes up behind him with an axe and finishes him off. Stacy heads upstairs to the bathroom, following the aloe glow figure. And when the figure melts down into the bath, she gets in and bathes in it. And when she gets out, she's in a much better state. She heads downstairs and she sees what she's done to her husband and ends up with taxidermy and Keith. Stacy gets dressed and goes into the bank. When she gets there, she looks like she looks like just another one of the gossips. And the women can't help but embrace her with her new shallow social status. Now, this episode, it just reminded me so much of things like Goosebumps from when I was a kid. There was always this type of story where it was a young girl that was in school and she was an ugly duckling and she went and did something. She got a talisman or whatever it was and she ended up becoming the beautiful girl that everyone knew that she was and it'd always be someone fucking like incredible like you look at them now and go yep that was she was in goosebumps as the ugly duckling and it's like Kirsten Dunst or fucking Alyssa Milano or someone (laughs) so stupid but there you go and this was just it was a fun nostalgic episode like really fun and 
I know a lot about Kate Micucci from her stand-up and stuff, and I didn't realise how expressive she was with her face until I saw this episode. But I find her fascinating, and she did more things than just the stand-up. Like, if she did more films and stuff, I think she could be incredible of an actor with, like, sort of a Jim Carrey vibe about her. And I forget how much I like Martin Starr until I watch Martin Starr. Like, he was in Silicon Valley. I didn't watch Silicon Valley until it was way past its prime. Like, I watched it, I think, probably during the pandemic. And it ended in, like, 2017 or something. But I thought that was a really good show, and I thought he was great in it. And then when I saw him, I was like, isn't that the teacher from Spider-Man? And then I remember that he was in Spider-Man, and, you know, he's been in quite a few other things. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's mine, Star. But, yeah, he just, he makes me laugh so much and he plays his role really well it's very much like his other roles very straight laced and what have you but I like that kind of the way him and Kate Micucci play off each other I think they play it really well he's the kind of straight laced guy and she's a little bit wacky trying to make sure that she fits in with the horrible world that she lives in really but yeah I really really like this episode and these first four episodes were absolutely knockout um really fun um obviously horror which you know it's not going to be as in-depth as some of the other horrors that we're going to cover but it's one of those where it can be a bit comedic it can be horrific but it's just fun it's not too shocking it's just fun and i like it so hopefully i'm going to do more of these um i know i've got four more episodes in this season to actually deal with so that'll be coming up soon and I've got another two podcast episodes covering the last six episodes of the newsroom, season two. So that's something to come. But I think I'm going to leave it there for now. So thank you, guys. And I'll speak soon. Bye. Well, that's all for now, amigos. If you manage to make it to the end of my ramblings, thank you. And if you want to rate, share, subscribe, comment, it's all appreciated. Until next time.